Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and we'll, we'll begin. Father, we're so grateful for another day that has fallen from your sovereign hand to us. We pray as we prayed last night that your Holy Spirit would guide us into the truth of your word. We pray that he would do his work of illumination of your word to our hearts and to our minds so that we would come to know you better. And in so doing, we would live a life of obedience to the glory of Christ our King. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I would invite you to open your copy of God's Word to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. This is a message I've entitled, God's Glory and Sovereignty. God's Glory and Sovereignty. Daniel chapter 1. Let's begin in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and he appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. May God bless the reading of his word. Just a little bit of background information to the book of Daniel. I keep going in and out. I'm not sure what's going with the audio, but just a little bit of background information to the book of, of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is one of the most significant prophetic books in all of the Bible, but it is also full of practical truths. Uh, it's sometimes been referred to as the revelation of the Old Testament. It's full of prophecy. In fact, Daniel chapter 9 verse 25 foretold the exact time that the Messiah would present himself to the nation of Israel, and this was 600 years before Jesus actually came. The author of the book of Daniel, of course, is Daniel. That's, uh, it seems like a rather obvious point, but the authorship of Daniel is attacked to theologians because of the heavy prophetic nature of the book. And they say, well, how could Daniel be the author of this book when it foretold events hundreds of years 
after Daniel lived? Well, obviously, because it's a prophetic book. Uh, that's not real hard. It's a hard concept for liberal theologians, but not for us who believe in the inspiration of God's Word. Uh, Jesus affirmed Daniel as the author of this book in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Jesus speaking, he said, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Yes, Jesus himself affirmed Daniel as the author of the book of Daniel in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, verse 15. Jesus speaking, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So no less the Son of God affirmed Daniel as the author of the book of Daniel. So I will go with Jesus over today's liberal theologians. Thank you very much. The date of the book of Daniel is about the 6th century B.C. And the theme of the book is taken from Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, which reads this. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men. The whole theme of the book of Daniel is the absolute sovereignty of God. And so we will be talking about the glory of God in his sovereignty. And it comes through in a beautiful way in this passage of scripture, Daniel chapter 1. A little bit of historical background. Israel had been clamoring for a king, and so God gave them what they wanted. And sometimes God gives us what we want, even in judgment. So God was saying to Israel, okay, Israel, you want a king? Well, here's, here's Saul. And after Saul, then David. And after David, Solomon. And then the nation of Israel was divided in 931 B.C. into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom, Israel, fell to Assyria in 722 B.C. There were no righteous kings in the northern kingdom. 722 B.C. was God's judgment upon the northern kingdom after multiple, multiple warnings through the prophets. And then the southern kingdom, with the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom held on a bit longer, but the southern kingdom also fell into judgment through three raids of the Babylonians. The first raid came in 605 B.C., then another one in 597 B.C., and the final raid, the third raid in 586 B.C., and that completed the judgment, the temple was destroyed. And so as we open here with the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel opens with the first of the three Babylonian raids. The first of the three Babylonian raids, this happening in 605 BC. Okay, so with that uh, context, let's work our way back through the text. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, the first of the three raids. And look at this, verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. The author, Daniel, is being very careful with the names that he chooses here. The name here for Lord is not Yahweh, but rather it is Adonai. And Adonai means ruler. It means boss. It means one who is in control. 
And this is very significant because we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the original recipients of this letter. The mindset of the ancient Near Easterner to war was basically this. When two different forces came into battle, whichever force won that battle had the stronger gods. That was their mindset. So what does it say to these Jews in the southern kingdom? What does it say when they look up and they see that their beloved city, Jerusalem, has been laid siege by the pagan Babylonians and sacked? What does it say to them? It says to them that Yahweh has been defeated. It says to them that the pagan Babylonian gods were stronger than Yahweh, that Babylon had the stronger gods because apparently Yahweh has been defeated because the pagan Babylonians had come to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. For all the world, it looked like Yahweh had been defeated and the pagan Babylonian gods emerged supreme. That's how it would have looked to them. But again, notice that Daniel is being very careful with the names for God that he chooses. And here he says, Adonai, ruler, boss, one who is in control. And so what Daniel is saying to the recipients is this, even though it may seem like it, even though circumstances, or may not seem like it, even though circumstances would seem to indicate otherwise, God is in control. Dear friends, this is not something that took God by surprise. This is not something that caught God off guard. In fact, this is not something that God merely allowed to happen. This is something that God caused to happen. It says the Lord Adonai gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into the hands of the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. This is God's doing. This is something that he did. He orchestrated. It is a reflection of his sovereignty. God was bringing the southern kingdom of Judah into judgment. God's doing. And dear friends, this is what we are seeing today in our society. Back in uh, 2015, the United States Supreme Court created out of thin air a right for homosexuals to get married. Now, I think most of us in here understand that there is no such thing as homosexual marriage. That doesn't exist. God defines marriage, not the United States Supreme Court or any other court. God defines marriage between one man and one woman for one lifetime. But the U.S. Supreme Court legalized, quote-unquote, homosexual marriage. And there was a lot of hand-wringing amongst Christians in the United States right before this happened that, oh, if the United States Supreme Court does this, it's going to bring the judgment of God. That was what a lot of people were saying. It's going to bring God's judgment. No, no, no. That did not bring the judgment of God. That is the judgment of God. That is the judgment of God. God is giving people over to a depraved mind per Romans chapter 1. And the reason we're seeing today what we are seeing that there are now who knows how many genders. And the guy that maybe you worked with, your co-worker that yesterday you knew is um, 
I don't know, Chris, and all of a sudden he woke, the next day he comes to work showing up and he, he wants you to call him Christine, and he's wearing a dress because for some reason he woke up that morning, just decided he wanted to be a woman, and now you've got to use the preferred pronouns and refer to him as a woman, even though he's obviously a man, and if you don't do that, you're going to lose your job. The reason we're seeing this kind of insanity in our world today is because we're under the judgment of God. God is giving people over to a depraved mind in which they cannot even think. They cannot use logic at the most basic levels. This is the wrath of God's abandonment. That's what we're seeing today. That's why we're seeing the insanity that we are. But dear friends, even though it may seem like God is not in control, even though circumstances would seem to indicate otherwise, rest assured, dear one, that God is in control. He is in absolute control. He is working behind the scenes in ways that none of us can fully understand. But this is God's sovereignty on display. He brought Judah into judgment. And he is bringing us into judgment as well. But take heart. God is in control. Everything is working out according to his good pleasure, into his sovereign will. And that is a comfort for us. If I did not have a healthy theology of the sovereignty of God and I looked at our world right now, I would just curl up into a fetal position in my safe space and, you know, but I don't have to do that, and neither do you. Because we as Christians, we understand what's going on. This is the sovereign will of God playing out. God is in control, even though it may not seem like it. Even though circumstances may seem to indicate otherwise, God is in control. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So what is happening here is that Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan Babylonian king, wanted to take some of the choice young men from Judah and use them for his own personal purposes. The cream of the crop. These were young men, probably between uh, 15 and 17 years of age. So they were young, they were strong, they were handsome, good looking. They were very intelligent. They had been, uh, they had the best education. They, they were highly intelligent fluent in the language, very talented. And so Nebuchadnezzar took some of these young men, the, the youths in whom was no defect, and he took them and basically kidnapped them, took them from their home and took them hundreds of miles away to his own palace to use them for his own personal purposes. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So what is going on here? This is a period of brainwashing. 
Nebuchadnezzar took these young men, the cream of the crop, took them hundreds of miles away, brought them into his own kingdom, and he ordered them to be taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were an elite class of wise men in Babylon. Kings came from this class. Philosophy, agriculture, engineering, religion. And the Chaldean system was decidedly anti-Yahweh, anti-God. So this is a period of brainwashing. Nebuchadnezzar figured that he could take these, these highly trained, highly skilled, highly intelligent, young, strong young men and, and use them for his own purposes and have a period of brainwashing. And this, he figured, would happen over the course of about three years. And over the course of three years, Nebuchadnezzar figured he could completely reorient everything that they believed take from them everything that they ever knew and would give them a new system of education, teach them a new language, and even apparently try to give them new names. The king appointed for them, verse 5, the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he had drank, and he appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. In verse 6, now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Notice the text says, now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So in other words, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were not the only four of the young men from Judah. They were just a small number of a larger group. We don't know exactly how many of these young men there were in this group. I've seen some estimates from 50 to 75, maybe a few hundred. Let's just take the conservative end of that. Let's take the very small end of that. Let's say 50. 50 young men from Judah had been taken, kidnapped by the pagan Babylonians, delivered hundreds of miles away, put into the Babylonian kingdom, and they were going to be brainwashed for three, for three years. So among this large group of 50, we know the names of four. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Four out of 50. Then the commander, verse 7, Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Again, Daniel is being very careful with the names that he chooses because these names mean something. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. And Azariah means Yahweh is my help. So their original names, their Hebrew names, all point to whom? They all point to Yahweh. They say something about God, something about his character and his attributes. They all reflect upon God. But their new names also mean something. Daniel's new name, Belteshazzar, means protect the life of Bel, a Babylonian god. Hananiah's new name, Shadrach, is a reference to the uh, pagan Babylonian god, the moon god named Aku. It literally means command of Aku a pagan Babylonian god. Mishael's name 
who is what God is. His new name, Meshach, means who is what Aku is. Notice the contrast. Mishael, who is what God is. His new name, Meshach, who is what Aku is. A direct affront, a direct challenge, a direct insult to God. Azariah's name, Yahweh is my help, his new name, Abednego, means servant of Nego, a Babylonian deity. So their original Hebrew names all point to God. Their new names all point to pagan kings or pagan deities. This is a direct affront. This is a direct challenge. The gauntlet has been cast down. There is going to be a showdown. And who is going to emerge supreme? The pagan Babylonian gods or Yahweh? Given new names. Very deliberate. Those names are very deliberate. A direct challenge to Yahweh. A direct insult to him. Look at verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now that's a rather surprising statement, is it not? So think about what's going on. Up until this point, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they've all pretty much gone along with everything. They've been kidnapped from their home country. They're hundreds of miles away in a pagan kingdom. And they're being told that they have to learn a new language. Okay, teach us a new language, that's fine. We're going to give you a new system of education. We're going to teach you the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Okay, all right, that's fine. Knock yourself out. Oh, by the way, we're also going to give you new names. All right. We'll even go along with that. Don't like it, but that's, that's what you want to do. That's what you want to do. But then when it comes to the king's choice food or the wine that he drank, they were being offered that. All of a sudden, Daniel and his friends say, nope, not going to do that. That's a, that's a bridge too far. Give us a new system of education, fine. Give us... Uh, a new language to speak? Okay, we'll learn that too. Even give us new names? Don't like it, but we'll go along. But when it comes to the one thing that if I were in their shoes, I mean, that would be the one bright spot in an otherwise very undesirable situation. You know, I'm thinking, okay, I've been kidnapped. My family is hundreds of miles away. Everything that I've ever known is gone. And I'm given a new language, a new system of education, new name. The one bright spot would be the king's choice food or the wine that he was drinking. You know, I'd be thinking, wow, that, that prime rib over there, that, that looks pretty good. That would be the one bright spot in an otherwise very undesirable situation. But when it comes to that one thing, all of a sudden, Daniel and his friends say, no, we're not going to do it. Daniel and his friends made up their minds that they would not defile themselves with the king's choice food or with the wine which he was drinking. Why did they draw the line there? 
Why did they draw the line there? Because Daniel and his friends, I believe, by God's sovereignty, knew that they were about to be tested. And they wanted all of the glory for their upcoming victory. They wanted it all to go to God and to God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. And they did not want any of the credit to go to the king, to go to themselves, to go to the king's choice food or the wine which he was drinking. They wanted it all to go to God. And say that, so they drew the line. They said, no, we're not going to do that. Think about this a little bit more deeply with me. Remember I said that this was just four of a larger group? Probably at least, conservatively, at least 50 others. And they were four of 50, maybe hundreds, but four of 50. All of the other young men that had been taken from Judah, they went along with everything. Not only did they go along with the new system of education, new language, new names, they even also went along with the king's choice food in the wine which he drank. They went along with everything. But only these four said no. That is a telling statement. That is a, and a real insight, I believe. Because all of these youths in whom was no defect who had come from Judah, they had all come from the exact same background. They had the exact same culture. They had the exact same language. They had the exact same religion. They were all Jews. They had all been taught the scriptures. They all claimed to worship God. They all came from the same background. Cookie cutter. Cookie cutter. But now, when they're hundreds of miles away in a strange kingdom, and they're being brainwashed for three years, only four of the 50 said, we're not going to do that. Think of the temptation to succumb. Think of the pressure to go along and eat the king's choice food or drink his wine. Mom and dad wouldn't have known anything about it. I mean, it's not like the, any of the other youths from Judah were going to take a picture of them cutting into that prime rib and put it on social media for mom and dad back home in Judah to see this. Nobody would have known. Nobody would have known. And all of their friends were going along with it. Only the four did not. I think that is very telling because just because someone is raised in, in, in our context today, a church going home or an evangelical home, just because they're being raised in that environment and just because they have made intellectual assent to the basics of the gospel does not mean that that intellectual assent has penetrated their heart. What revealed the true colors? Persecution, temptation, that brought out the true colors. All the other young men compromised. Only Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah did not. To draw a parallel to, our, to this side of the cross, 
Dear friends, just because a child is raised in a church-going home, and just because a child has made intellectual assent to a few basic gospel facts, does not necessarily mean that that child is ready to be baptized. And of course, I'm speaking, I'm teaching from a credo-baptistic standpoint, that only believers are baptized. Doesn't mean they're ready to be baptized. Doesn't mean that conversion has truly taken place. Nothing will show the genuineness of someone's profession of faith in Christ like persecution and like temptation. That's what reveals the true colors. And that's what revealed the true colors of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and also, unfortunately, the true colors of all the other youths, all their other peers. So if your child professes faith in Christ, that's good, that's encouraging, you want to nurture that, but wait on their baptism, because you will not be able to tell if that's a genuine profession of faith until later, until they're older, until they face some persecution, until they face some real temptations. In a five, six, seven, eight, nine-year-old child, you're not gonna be able to tell that. But if you add 10 years to that age, 15, 16, 17, you'll have a little bit better handle on it. Nothing like a real trial, nothing like real temptation, nothing like, like real persecution that reveals how genuine our faith in Christ truly is. Verse 9. Let's back up. I want to bring out another point, verse 8. Notice in verse 8, Daniel, it says that Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. He made up his mind beforehand. Daniel and his friends were resolute. They made up their minds beforehand that they would not defile themselves in this way. Dear friends, be resolute now about how you are going to handle temptation when it comes. Make up your minds now as to how you will handle temptation. Because if you don't make up your mind now, if you're not resolute now, then once you get to the place of temptation, you're going to cave. You will cave. Don't let yourself get in a place of temptation and then decide how you're going to try to handle it. Make up your mind now that you will not defile yourself with the temptations of this world. Young men, young women, Make up your minds now that you will not defile yourself with sexual sin. Preserve yourself for marriage. Because if you don't settle that in your mind right now, when you get to the place of temptation, you're going to cave. You're going to cave. Do it now. Verse 9. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. 
God granted Daniel and his friends favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. God always honors our obedience. God granted Daniel and his friends favor with the, in the sight of the commander of the Babylonian officials. And basically, God was moving sovereignly, moving in the heart of even this pagan Babylonian who was put in charge over them. And he's basically saying this to Daniel and his friends. Hey, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, I like you. I don't know why I like you, but, but I do. And, and I really want to help you here. I really want to help you. But you've got to understand that if I help you in this, that may mean I forfeit my head to the king, quite literally. But God granted them favor. God always honors our obedience. He always honors our obedience to him. And when we make up our minds that we will not defile ourselves with the things of this world, when we make up our minds that we will live a life of obedience to the glory of Christ our King, God always honors that. He honors our obedience. And He rewards it. Sometimes God rewards our obedience to Him with tangible things, with things that we can see, like He did here. It was tangible that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezariah, they could see that God had granted them favor in the sight of the commander of the officials. They could see that. Sometimes God honors our obedience in those kinds of tangible ways. But sometimes He doesn't. Sometimes He doesn't. God honored the faithful life of the apostles, did He not? The faithful lives of the apostles, what did He get them? It got them persecuted. It got them executed. The apostle Paul had his head lopped off. Stephen was stoned. Peter was crucified upside down. Oh, well, I thought God, God honors our obedience. Why, why did that happen to them? That is the honor of God. That is God honoring their obedience because it was a privilege for them to suffer for the sake of Christ. Sometimes God honors our obedience in tangible ways, but sometimes God honors our obedience by allowing us to suffer for the glory of Christ. So whether or not we see tangible, physical rewards for our obedience, know this, dear ones, obedience to God is in and of itself its own reward. Obedience to God is in and of itself its own reward. And even if we don't see tangible blessings from our obedience, you and I will have the blessing of having a clear conscience before God. And we will know that our obedience to God pleases Him regardless of what it means to us physically. And that is in and of itself its own reward. Knowing that I am pleasing God by my obedience, that is in and of itself its own reward. God always honors our obedience. Verse 11. But Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He says this. Please test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating 
the king's choice food. And I kind of find that funny. Daniel is saying, let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the other youths. You know, our other so-called friends that came along with us that are, are kowtowing, are compromising. Yeah, those guys, yeah. Judge our appearance as opposed to their appearance at the end of 10 days. Traitors. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So Daniel is saying, look, tell you what, give us 10 days. Just 10 days. Give us nothing to eat but vegetables, nothing to drink but water. Let these other knuckleheads that were supposedly our friends, let them go ahead and have the prime rib and drink the nice wine. And then you, would, you judge their appearance as opposed to our appearance at the end of 10 days and, and do with it with what you see. Some people have made this, uh, these couple of verses here into a diet plan. The Daniel diet. You may have heard of that. The Daniel diet. Uh, Rick Warren did this for a while. It, you know, he doesn't do it anymore because he's, uh, obviously the Daniel diet has not worked for him. But he, he, uh, but he was big about this for a while. Let's, let's do the Daniel diet. This is this is how God wants us to eat right here. This is God's prescription for how we should eat. We should eat nothing but vegetables and drink nothing but water. And that's, that's how God wants us to eat. That completely misses the entire point of the text. Daniel and his friends did not prosper because of the food. They prospered in spite of the food. That's the point. And to make some diet out of this, you know, Daniel's diet, that that completely turns this text on its head. They prospered in spite of the food, not because of it. Daniel wanted all of the glory for his upcoming and his friends' upcoming victory to go only to God, only to Him. And dear friends, that is how you and I should live our lives as Christians. We should live our lives in such a way that our obedience to God reflects upon God and God only, not ourselves. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Good works are a part of the Christian's life. This is the natural fruit in keeping with repentance. We should have good works. But make sure the works that you do for Christ are done only for Christ. And they are done in such a way to bring honor to Him and not to you, not to me. And there, I've seen people out there, I'm sure you have too, they busy themselves in the church and they do this and they do that, but they, wanted, they do these things because they really want what? They want a pat on the back. They want other people to notice what they're doing. If that is your motivation for serving Christ, then you have your reward in full. Hope you enjoy it. You may get some accolades and pats on the back. You might get some likes on your social media posts. But if that is your motivation in serving Christ, you have your reward in full. Christ is not pleased. Christ is not honored. Sole Deo Gloria. All of the glory that comes from our good works should go to Him, not to us. Verse 14. 
So he listened to them in this matter, and he tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all of the other youths who had been eating the king's choice food. They prospered in spite of the food. Now, I'm, I'm no doctor, I'm no dietitian, but I do know if you eat nothing but vegetables and drink nothing but water, uh, your appearance is not going to be better. It's not going to be fatter than all the other youths. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine that they were to drink, and he kept giving them vegetables. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. God blessed them. He gave them wisdom. He gave them understanding. He gave them knowledge and intelligence. Supernatural knowledge. This was God honoring their obedience. And notice that God gave it only to the four youths. Only to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He didn't give it to all the others. Only to Daniel and his friends. Then at the end of the days, which the king has specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. Here comes the showdown. The showdown at high noon. Who is going to emerge supreme? The pagan Babylonian gods or Yahweh? The king talked with them and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and all the conjurers who were in all his realm. And I believe this ten times better, this is a figure of speech. They were, they were many, many times better than all the other magicians, all the other conjurers, all the other pagan intellectuals that were in all of his realm. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were found many times better, many times more intelligent, many times more wise. Yahweh has emerged supreme. Yahweh has beaten the pagan Babylonian gods. God blessed them with wisdom and intelligence. Psalm chapter 119, verse 100. The psalmist says, I have more insight than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. I, in, I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. David here is not saying, he is not making an arrogant statement. He is not saying I am smarter than all of the all of the." The aged, I have more wisdom than the aged in an arrogant way. David was saying he was wise. Why? Because he had studied God's precepts. He had studied God's word. And that is what made him wise. There is more wisdom in a genuinely converted 20-year-old man or woman who is truly serving Christ. There is more wisdom in that person, that young person, than there is in someone who has lived 90, 100 years, who's lost. There's more wisdom in that young person than that aged person. If the young person is a Christian and the aged person is lost, and this is what is going on here. David says, I have more insight than them all. Even more insight, more wisdom than the aged. Why? 
simply because he has studied the precepts of God. And I want to read verse 19. I want to read this in the way in which it would have been read and understood by the original recipients by looking at these names again. Let's read this again, verse 19. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like God is my judge. Out of them all, not one was found like Yahweh is gracious. Out of them all, not one was found like who is what God is. Out of them all, not one was found like Yahweh is my help. Dear friends, this world has a lot that it wants to offer you and a lot with which to tempt you. But out of them all, not one will you find like Jesus Christ. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the wonderful counselor, almighty God. Nothing will satisfy you from the world like Christ will satisfy you. Out of them all, not one will you find like Jesus Christ. Has there been a time in your life when you have been convicted by the Holy Spirit of God that you are a sinner. And because of your sin, the righteous wrath of God abides on you. If you will repent of your sin, turn from sin and place your trust in Jesus, He will save you, you will pass from death to life, and out of all of the things that this world has to offer you, dear friends, not one will you find like Christ. He is the only one who can give you true peace. He is the only one who can allay your guilty conscience from your sin. He is the only one who can assure you of eternal life with Him. Out of all the things that the world has to offer, not one will you find like Jesus. In verse 21, And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Notice who outlasted whom. God is my judge, outlasted the pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. Out of them all, not one will you find like Christ. God's sovereignty put on beautiful display in Daniel chapter 1. No matter how bad the world may seem, no matter how, no matter how bad you're situation is that you are going through right now, no matter how grim the report from the doctor may be, know, dear ones, that as a Christian, as a Christian, God is in control. You have that assurance. God is in control of your life, working behind the scenes in ways that none of us can understand, but God is in control, and all glory goes to Him, and that is a great comfort to you and to me as Christians. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you that we can read through the pages of your word and we can see just in beautiful detail of how you are constantly working behind the scenes. We thank you for that. We thank you for even for the tests and trials that come our way as believers, that show our true colors. We thank you for that. We thank you that you honor our obedience, sometimes in tangible ways, but always just in, in being pleased through our obedience. Father, help us to realize, help us to always be mindful that when we obey you, we're pleasing you, and that should be our heart's 
greatest desire. So, Father, may we live lives of obedience to the glory of Christ our King for his honor so that all glory, all glory goes to him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.